From KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Religion for Life. Religionforlife.com. I'm John Schuck. Today's show is the second of a three-part series on the Bible. The Bible is a challenge. Sure, we're reading texts that are over 2,000 years old and thus need to be understood in their own context. But we can make our way through ancient texts. We can read Homer or the Epic of Gilgamesh and with some assistance understand it. The Bible is a special problem because of the supernatural aura surrounding it. I remember going to a funeral and watching a preacher shake his Bible at us and proclaim, the Bible is the only book God ever wrote. I thought that God might be a bit more prolific. Of course, that's the problem with the Bible. For so long, people have thought it was the words of God, a divine message. Many churches still promote it as such. Because of this word of God metaphor, it's easy to, in the words of one scholar, put halos around bad texts. The figure, God, portrayed in the Bible is often not a good character. God commands people to commit what we would call today genocide. What do we do with a violent God? One solution is to declare that the Bible is barbaric literature reflecting a barbaric time. Another solution is to read it carefully as a complex struggle within its own pages between violence and nonviolence. My guest is John Dominic Crossan, Professor Emeritus at DePaul University. He's widely regarded as the foremost historical Jesus scholar of our time. He was co-chair of the Jesus Seminar from 1985 to 1996 as it met in twice annual meetings to debate the historicity of the life of Jesus in the Gospels. He's written 27 books on the historical Jesus, the Apostle Paul, and earliest Christianity, and his work has been translated into 13 languages. He was on Religion for Life a couple of years ago to talk about his book, The Power of Parable, How Fiction by Jesus Became Fiction About Jesus. His latest book is How to Read the Bible and Still Be a Christian, Struggling with Divine Violence from Genesis to Revelation, via Skype from his home in Florida. Welcome, Professor Crossan, to Religion for Life. It's a pleasure to be back with you again, John. Thank you for having me. Well, let's talk about the title and subtitle of your book, How to Read the Bible and Still Be a Christian, Struggling with Divine Violence from Genesis through Revelation. As critics of Christianity point out, the God of the Bible often is violent and vengeful, thus the Bible should be dismissed. And when Christians read the Bible, they can come away a bit embarrassed with how God is portrayed, or even worse, think that the violent part is the central part. Um, what do you, what is, is, is the, are we more ethical than the Bible is? Have, have we surpassed the Bible, or should we reclaim the Bible? Reclaim is my word. Reclaim. I've spent my life with it. I wouldn't spend my life if I thought it was rubbish, to be quite frank with you. Mm -hmm. I think you mentioned that my scholarship is especially with the historical Jesus, and that's really the answer to to the still be a Christian. The Bible is a small library. We all know that. It's kind of disguised as a book. It has one cover on it. But it presents itself as a story from Genesis all the way through to the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation. And that's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in the Christian Bible. So you can't get away by saying the the libel that we've sometimes said that the God of the Old Testament is like the bad cop. You know, he's vengeance and all the Mm -hmm. rest. But the God of the New Testament is all love and mercy and, and fuzzy stuff. Well, if you've read the book of Revelation, the last book in the Christian Bible, it is not only the most violent book in the entire Bible, it is actually the most violent book in the canonical literature of all the world religions. 
wow. that I spent 26 years teaching at DePaul University in comparative religion. So basically, when you read through it, you come to the conclusion, well, the final solution of God and of Jesus, by the way, to violence or in the world is to be more violent, to come back on a war horse and slaughter all the unjust, helped by the angels. Now, if that's the story of the Bible, and that's all there's there, then it's not adequate to ignore the Bible. It would have to be profoundly rejected. And by rejected, I don't mean ignored. I mean fought against. Because the vision there is absolutely destructive, I think, both of humanity and divinity. So my answer is, if you take a look at the Bible itself, the whole Bible, the whole Christian Bible, you find that the meaning is in the middle, not the end, and the climax is in the center. There's this Jesus of Nazareth, and he rides into Jerusalem, for example, on a peace donkey, on what we call Palm Sunday. Well, that's a, <laughs> a mockery, a lampoon of Roman power, and it's done according to the prophecy of Zechariah that the Messiah would come in on a peace donkey, not a war horse, and put an end to war. So that, for me, is the norm, the criterion, the discriminant of the entire Bible. And what happens afterwards is our Christian, let me put it, response to a nonviolent Jesus, whom we declare to be the image of a nonviolent God. And we are then, to put it bluntly, rejecting that. We invent a second coming, a return, even though, of course, Jesus said, I'll be with you always, but let's leave that aside. We invent a second coming in which he kind of gets over this peace donkey stuff and comes back on a battle charger, leading the angels to slaughter all the unjust, which is basically other people than ourselves. So what I see in the Bible is a, an assertion of a, of a vision, which is there, is asserted. It's there. We, do, we have the story of that Palm Sunday. But then steadily, that is eroded, negated within the Bible itself. Well, then would you rather that uh, the book of Revelation had never been in the Bible? Um, actually, I'm ambiguous on that, to be clear with you. Uh -huh. You know, in the year 325, when Eusebius of Caesarea mentioned the books that are certainly in, certainly out, and the ones that could go either way. He put the book of Revelation in that middle category that <laughs> could go either way. Yeah, it would have been fine if it, <laughs> if it had not been put in. But if, we, if it was not in there, it would simply have gone underground. Hmm. When it's in there, it makes us face it. We have to face the brutal fact, as it were. Is Jesus the rider on the peace donkey or the rider on the war horse? Because they're both there. They're both in the Bible. So rather than simply saying, well, we have this nice vision of Jesus and the, uh, the peace donkey, and let's say we don't have the book of Revelation. So we're kind of thinking, well, yeah, that was nice for Jesus. He was kind of a bit of a liberal, you know. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was sweet. It was nice. But let's get on with reality. I think we'd have done it in any case, with or without the book of Revelation. I think what is most difficult for Christianity is that it has committed itself, and I'm making now an historical statement, to a person, Jesus of Nazareth, 
who by everything I know about him historically, was a nonviolent revolutionary against Roman power and any high priestly cooperation with Roman power. He was using nonviolent resistance. And we as Christians claim that he is the image of our God, the revelation of our God. Well, then we are we have stuck ourselves, as it were, with a nonviolent God. So what are we going to do with that? And the answer is, of course, we're going to invent a second coming to fix it up. Hmm. We have to get violent in there somehow. We have to get back because, I mean, I think violence is humanity's drug of choice. It's, it's mm. not just there's a few evil people out there. It's not that. I think what has happened across the last 10,000 years of human evolution is not that we've got more evil, I, I don't think so, but that we have got more violent weapons with which to be evil. So that, oh, to give a simple example, when I was in boarding school, the worst thing you might ever happen to anyone is you might get a punch in a fight, fist fight. Nobody brought guns to school. Mm. So if you look across human violence in the last 10,000 years, We've never really invented a weapon we didn't use or that wasn't more violent than the ones that preceded it. And so if I simply look at human evolution as a species, I'm not even talking about morality or ethics. I'm beginning to wonder how will we survive as a species unless we work out some kind of a 12-point <laughs> program, as it were, for our favorite drug, which is violence. Can we ever get to think of violence as we think of slavery, something that we used to do, used to think natural, used to think normal, take for granted, but we don't think was ever right, and we certainly don't think is right for the future. Can we get that way with violence, or are we a doomed species? I think one of the most fascinating parts of your book uh, is the analysis of the first chapters of Genesis. It's a critique of civilization. Uh, original sin is the escalatory violence of civilization as shown in the story of Cain. Can you talk a little bit about that in regards to violent civilization and, and human nature and, and how we should read those early chapters and really, in a sense, how we read the whole text of the Bible? Because it, what's happening for me, John, is in those early chapters, too, I, I'm going to say independent vectors, but who knows when your own mind how things mix, come together. If, if I simply look at human civilization, the what's called the the um, the agrarian or the Neolithic revolution, which means the domestication of grains and domestication of cattle, settle down life, which we find is not very settled, by the way, but settle down life where instead of nomadic movers and you can move off if if one group, say, uses violence against another, you can always move. But once you have irrigated farms on the floodplains of, say, great rivers like the Nile or the Tigris and the Euphrates especially, you can't move. And you have to have defense perimeters and you have to know wh where your expanding population can grow and where it can defend itself. So over the dawn of civilization, and I'm using civilization in the sense in which anthropologists and sociologists use it, when they call, for example, Iraq, Mesopotamia, the, the cradle of civilization. I mean, obviously, human culture had been around for millions of years before that. But civilization means the agrarian farming 
development that is the Neolithic Revolution and that happened not uniquely but primordially and inaugurally in the plains of Mesopotamia and of course affected the Bible. So when you read Genesis 4, which is by the way the first time you find the word sin ever used in the Bible, mm -hmm. Cain is the farmer and he kills the herder. And that's pretty obvious. I'm now talking quite literally there. They're summarizing the Neolithic Revolution as farmer kills herder. That's it. The farming is invented and it's the end of really of herding and nomadic lifestyle, hunting, gathering. And then it says that Cain invents the first city. So farmer kills herder, builds first city. And as we know, and they didn't, the city will eventually destroy the farmer, of course, and take over the farm. So the first thing that happens in that chapter is the farmer kills the herder. That's a 1-1, one, one, as it were. But by the end of the chapter, Lamech, we're maybe four or five, maybe five or six generations later, Lamech is boasting that he's already killed somebody for hitting him. And if anyone kills him, his tribe, we're talking about the desert um, blood feuds, if anyone kills him, his tribe will take out none of this sevenfold, but 70 times sevenfold. So you're asked in that single chapter to work from Cain and Abel to Lamech and watch what I call escalatory violence take place in a single chapter. It's the most succinct description of the dawn of civilization and the, <laughs> the cradle of civilization, the Neolithic revolution that I know. And it agrees exactly with what anthropologists and sociologists say that with the farming life, where you have to defend your farms, you can't just move on. The midwives <laughs> that rock the cradle of civilization are empire and violence. And it's almost inevitable because you, your expanding population pushes outward and those who don't have farms look inward and have figured out that if they come at harvest time, it's all free. <laughs> so. Where is the line where we will feel safe? And that's the, the, the cry of civilization for the last 6,000 years. And so the text of the Bible, just as we have it, Genesis to Revelation, is this struggle between um, this vision of civilization and this vision that subverts civilization with, uh, a, nonviolent, uh, with a nonviolent way of being. Uh, embodied in the historical Jesus? That's pretty much the way I see it. it. The struggle goes on right in the Bible itself. It's not like the good book against the bad world. Mm -hmm. The struggle is inside the Bible, and it's utterly understandable, and it's not about evil people. It's about normal people. The extraordinary thing is that anyone ever came up with a vision of a just world, because you sure don't get it from looking around, not in the first century, not a thousand years ago, not today. If you looked around, you'd say, well, it seems to me that you know the 1% must own most of it. I'm talking about 1st century and 21st century. And get over it. You know, Where did you get this idea that there should be a just distribution of the world? The Bible came up with this absolutely extraordinary idea, which is hinted, of course, elsewhere. But I'm talking about the Bible at the moment. That God is like a householder who wants a fair distribution of everything, like any householder would. You wouldn't think it's charity or almsgiving when a householder feeds the, their children. So they imagine the world like 
God's the householder and the world's the great household of God. And they asked, is everyone getting a fair share? As they should in any household. They're, they don't know liberalism or human rights or democratic rights or any of that stuff. They're simply saying, well, the world is just a big household and God's the householder. And is everyone getting enough? And that's where they got their, their idea that this isn't right. Now, the fascinating thing in the Bible is it's not just a chant about that. Again and again, it's asserted and then subverted. I use the analogy of a heartbeat where you have expansion, contraction, expansion, contraction, assertion, subversion. So you get this assertion of a God who demands a world of justice and peace, and then attributed to that same God, though. And if I don't get it, says God, I'm really going to kill you guys. Hmm. So <laughs> you get the terrible disjunction of a God saying, I want nonviolence, but if I don't get it, boy, I'm going to be violent. Well, and that's like uh, even Jesus in, say, Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats passage. It's a beautiful passage about caring for, uh, you know, I visited you in prison and visited, or, or you visited me in prison exactly. and so forth. And exactly. then at the same time, great, great for you, sheep, but, well, you goats are in trouble. Yes, the other side is in trouble. So you can go through the entire Bible from beginning to end, really. And you have this tension of a God of nonviolent distributive justice, let's say, and violent retributive justice. And many people would say, well, what's your problem? That's the way God is. And I say, well, my problem is not God. My problem is that we Christians claim that Jesus is the image of God. It's Jesus I want to talk about. And I can get to know Jesus as an historical figure. And as, an, as a historian, I know that Pilate made a judgment about Jesus, which I think was absolutely correct from his point of view, which is, First of all, Jesus is a revolutionary, not just a little philosopher, you know, saying nice ideas. He's a revolutionary. He's an activist, we might say. So I'm going to make an example of him and hang him up on a cross for everyone to see. That's the way he would handle a revolutionary. But Pilate made no attempt to round up Jesus's followers. And that is the way Roman justice and Roman Romanizers handled nonviolent revolutionaries. If Jesus were a violent revolutionary from Pilate's point of view, even if he thought he was, he would have strung up at least 12 crosses because that's the way he would have handled a Barabbas, for example, who's a violent revolutionary or any violent revolution we know about. If, if you try to grab them all to make your point, but the Romans didn't bother crucifying philosophers they did tend to crucify activists. So if you were a philosopher and you were drawing crowds, and even though you were not armed and there was no danger you were going to attack or anything like that, if you were attracting a crowd and what you were saying was the Roman system is not the system of God. And of course the Romans said, our system is the system of God. And by the way, Caesar is divine as long as we're at it. If you were doing that, then exactly what happened to Jesus would be the Roman response. Jesus would be crucified, but his followers would be left. Now, if they're still at it a few years, you pick off the next leader and the next leader. If you're just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is John Dominic Crossan, author of a new book, How to Read the Bible and Still Be a Christian. I want to 
push one more time on this historical Jesus. You write, uh, and you've just talked about, if, the, if for Christians the biblical Christ is the criterion of the biblical God, then for Christians the historical Jesus is the criterion for the biblical Christ. Uh, we looked at the historical Jesus to really read the text. Would that still be true for you if Albert Schweitzer's Jesus were the historical Jesus? Or in other words, if the historical Jesus was an apocalyptic prophet predicting the violent coming of God? No, no. If Jesus predicted the violent coming of God, then I don't understand what some of that stuff in the in the Sermon on the Mount is, and I don't understand what that donkey stuff is, uh-huh. <laughs> riding into Jerusalem. What I do understand is a slow, steady, let me use a invent a word, violentization of Jesus as you go to the gospel. For example, you just mentioned Matthew. Chapter 5, Jesus and Matthew says, don't call people names, love your enemies, and all the rest of it. By chapter, what is it, 23, I think, he, Jesus is calling people all sorts of names, and you, you brood of vipers and hypocrites, you're going straight to hell. Now, the question then you have to face is, did Jesus change his mind, or did Matthew change his Jesus? And that's exactly the same question you asked the book of Revelation. Did Jesus change his mind and say, okay, the incarnation, that first coming, let's say, didn't really work. I'm coming back a second time, and I'm going to <laughs> use violence. Did Jesus change his mind, as it were, or did Christianity change its Jesus? And I'm going with the second option, because that seems to me the utterly human thing to do when you're confronted with a nonviolent Jesus. And I think I'm making that as an historical statement. I think Jesus was advocating nonviolent resistance to Rome. And my witness for that is more than anything else, actually, good old Pilate. Mm. I think he got it exactly right. Well, you know, Antipas did the same to John the Baptist. He didn't round up his followers. He simply put the leader to death. And we know that that's the way the Romans handled nonviolent activism, nonviolent resistance. Well, let's go to Paul just for a second. Um, People might say, was Paul uh, uh, in the spirit of the nonviolent justice, peace tradition of Jesus, or or did Paul distort the Jesus message? No, I don't think he distorted. I consider him his most faithful disciple of Jesus. I think he comes almost very close at the end of Romans chapter 12 to almost quoting Jesus on um, loving your enemies. The one difference there is between Paul, though, I think, Paul still imagined that we Christians, he would say, should never, ever, ever use violence because God is far better at it and God will do it at the end. I think there's still that lure of the apocalyptic consummation which will be violent, not for Christians. I mean, it's not, to be fair, the the book of Revelation never, ever mentions, by the way, that Christians will participate in this great final Armageddon. That's left up to uh, the Left Behind series or the Narnia series that suggests that Christians would participate in it. That's not that's not in the Bible, to be fair. Uh, God, Jesus, the angels may be violent, but the even those who say that never suggest we should join them. But I think there is a difference in Jesus that he insists that God brings the, the sun up on the the just and the unjust and gives rain to the good and the bad. Well, that's not punitive. That's not vengeful. If you want to be vengeful, the good should get, you know, a nice gentle dew and <laughs> you get a downpour 
for the bad. So if God does not practice violence, as Jesus sees it, I think that's where he gets his own idea. I'm not, I don't think he, he just says, let's be nonviolent because the Romans are more powerful than we are. I think it's a theological basis. Don't be violent because God is not violent. Paul, in that one case in Romans, I think is telling Christians, don't under any circumstances ever use violence, but God will. Leave it up to God. Now, my problem with that is the opening page of the, the Bible tells us we're made in the image and likeness of God. So if God's going to be terminally violent, I don't know how to argue that we shouldn't get with the program, <laughs> as mm. it were. Sort of jumpstart the apocalypse. So the how-to, to kind of uh, summarize this, the how to read the Bible as a Christian is to read it quite critically, isn't it? Yes. And, 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 and to understand that it has both this violent and nonviolent uh, aspects to it. And then it's really a choice of, of faith or of reading the Bible faithfully. Of, of saying uh, we're going to read this as, as a nonviolent text. That's, that's the message that has uh, the overpowering influence on us. And I, yeah, and I would push it to one other point that you can watch the rhythm going on within the Bible itself. The Bible sort of this assertion and subversion. And also the historical Jesus, and by that I mean the figure who was there in the first century, whom some people believed was a criminal and other people believed was the Christ. That's the person I'm talking about. I'm not talking about a different person or two persons of Jesus and Christ. As far as I can see, that historical figure was nonviolent. Then faith comes in by saying, and I, as a Christian, take that historical figure for me as what God looks like in sandals, as it were. <laughs> how, how to read the Bible and still be a Christian. John Dominic Crossan, uh, my guest. We just have a couple of minutes left. I want to take it on a different direction. Uh, Marcus Borg uh, died this past year. Um, I was at his uh, memorial service in Portland in March, and, and I saw you there as well. And um, both of you have been very influential, not only in, in, in my spirituality, but in, in many others. Uh, it seems the two of you ha had a common vision to, to speak to the life of the church to, to help it be Christian. Anything you'd like to say about Marcus or, or your work together? It was marvelous. I mean, since Owen Ryan Numbers 2000, we wrote three books together. In many cases, we did joint lectures together. We did, what, 16 different pilgrimages together. We, in mm. this case, being Marianne and Marcus, Sarah and myself. The four of us, yeah, we did what, 11 to Turkey and other ones as well. So I really um, know his theology very, very well. And what he, what he said again and again, I'm almost quoting him now verbatim, is that what the church needs, if it has any future and to be its future, is adult theological re-education. In other words, the T word, theology, not just spirituality, which can be certainly totally individual. I mean, you don't, we never talk about organized spirituality. But the reason that religion or theology organizes is to do something. So Marcus and I, I mean, the core of our belief is that if you'd asked Jesus or Paul, you know, why do you run around all the time for, why do you, why don't you settle down and just have a nice little parish at Nazareth or Corinth? They'd look at us with wide-eyed amazement and say, but they're organized. So we're organizing. Hmm. And that's, I think, what Marcus wanted, to, to have the church reorganize, of course, 
the function of that reorganization was not to get us ready for heaven, but to take back the world for God, which is the biblical vision. Heaven will take care of itself. It's the world that is the problem. <laughs> John Dominic Crossan, uh, my guest. Uh, wonderful to speak with you. Author of his, the latest book is How to Read the Bible and Still Be a Christian Struggling with Divine Violence from Genesis through Revelation. Uh, thank you for this important work and for being with me today on Religion for Life. And thank you and goodbye, John. You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. I'm John Shuck. For more information about the show, including links to podcasts, go to religionforlife.com. Like Religion for Life on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and listen on iTunes. Religion for Life is heard on KZUM, Lincoln, Nebraska, and WEHC, Emory, Virginia. Religion for Life is produced and distributed with assistance from WETS Johnson City, Tennessee, and KBOO Portland. Be well.